From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to a recent survey conducted by the Mayo Clinic, Americans believe that the country's biggest health care challenge is cancer. And other top concerns are obesity, neurological diseases like Alzheimer's, diabetes, and heart disease. The survey, known as the National Health Checkup, is designed to give us a quick snapshot of consumer health behaviors and opinions several times a year. We'll hear more about the most recent findings and find out how Mayo Clinic is using this data. Also on the program, we'll discuss common pediatric urology problems, including bedwetting. And ask a Mayo Clinic and a Mayo Clinic expert will share some startling suicide statistics. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, in January of this year, the Mayo Clinic began conducting what's called a National Health Checkup. And it's a survey that's done several times throughout the year to take the pulse of Americans, what else? Well, their health, their health concerns, and their lifestyle behaviors. Taking the pulse. I get what you did there. That's the pulse of America. America's health. The most recent results revealed that adults in the U.S. feel the biggest health concern in our country is cancer. Other top concerns were obesity, neurological diseases like ALS and Alzheimer's, as well as diabetes and heart disease. Here to discuss the National Health Checkup is Medical Director for Public Affairs at Mayo Clinic, Dr. John Wald. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Wald. Thank you both. It's terrific to be here. And Dr. Wald, nice to have you with us. So why did the Mayo Clinic decide that they would check up on America's health pulse? Well, Tom... As you know, Mayo Clinic's been around for about 150 years now, and although people think of us as a research and education institution, our hallmark for 150 years has actually been taking the time to listen to patients. As we start to go through changes in healthcare across the U.S., it's never been more important for us to start listening to not just our own patients, but to health consumers in general to start determining what they know, what they're concerned about, and then partnering with them to really deliver the best forms of medical treatment and education that we can. So how was this survey conducted? How do you go about Is there just somebody walking around with a clipboard? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've uh, actually advanced our techniques beyond that. Just a touch. (laughs) And um, we now reach out to them, usually by telephone interview. We reach uh, about 10,000 Americans from all walks of life, all nationalities across the U.S., all regions of the U.S., to sample uh, what their concerns are and what their fears are. And is this something, does Mayo hire someone to do this for them, or are these Mayo employees who are actually doing the interview? We work with an outside firm to help conduct the interviews. And who comes up with the questions? Well, it's it's a combination of the external consultant and our own group and our own health care advisors that come up with the questions. And what, so far, you've been doing this just this year? So this will be the second survey. We started in January 2016. On the first survey, what surprised you the most? Well, in the first survey, and it's been reiterated in this survey, how savvy American health consumers are. Really? And I think we as physicians oftentimes have a very paternalistic approach to our patients, and we, quote, know what's best for them. But I think what we're finding is because of the rapid changes going on in American healthcare today, Americans are studying healthcare. They're finding what their best opportunities are. If you look at insurance products, insurance products have changed significantly over the last five to ten years and what people have access to. So those health consumers picking those products 
have to do a deeper dive into what's available for them. What do they want to have covered in these insurance products? And we're seeing some of that savviness come out in their knowledge that they're expressing as part of this survey. Isn't it interesting, though, that as savvy as American health consumers are, they still fear cancer more than heart disease? Well, that, that is true. But if we look at the survey, 83% of Americans felt like the greatest inroads into treatment have been made in heart disease. And I believe that when we say heart disease for most Americans, that means heart attack. Mm. And there's all kinds of media stories about stents and blood thinners and open-heart surgery being done at even your local community hospital for people that have, you know, four-vessel heart disease. But when it comes to cancer, it touches every family, and it touches every family in a different way. It may be pancreatic cancer in one family. It may be multiple myeloma in another family. And even in forms of cancer, there are different types of cancer. And I think it's very scary for patients. And even though we've made great inroads, if you look at breast cancer, for example, the five-year survival rate across all forms of cancer now is greater than 90%. That's an amazing number. But And I thought it was also interesting when you say uh, how cognizant uh, the consumers are. It is, in fact, true because I saw on the survey that they feared brain cancer, pancreas cancer, and lung cancer the most, and they're exactly right. Those are the ones that are most difficult to treat with the highest death rate. Right. Spot on. So brain cancer is the most scary patient most scary cancer for patients, excuse me. And as a neuroradiologist, that's what I see every day. The two-year survival rate for a glioblastoma, the highest level of cancer, if you will, is less than two years. Metastatic pancreatic cancer, probably less than a year if we look at all comers. That's terrifying for patients when they get that diagnosis. But hopefully, you know, with these new targeted therapies, we're going to do better in the future. Uh, but indeed, you can you can understand why people fear cancer, because that's what they hear about, that's what they talk about, and, and although heart disease is the biggest killer, it's often older individuals. Did you uh, survey people about cost? Cost has got to be a huge issue. So it is a huge uh, concern for Americans in this country. And as one of the things that we asked with an upcoming presidential election. Yeah, I was going to say, what I'm afraid of when you're talking about cancer, what I'm afraid of is I'm not going to make it through this presidential election. Yeah, how does politics election tie into anxiety. this? Yeah. <laughs> so what we found was that nearly 80% of Americans are going to choose their candidate on some health-related issue. Really? Cost, access, and the quality of health care will determine who Americans are voting for in between 70 and 80% of Americans. That tells us where Americans are, where it is in the political discussion, Mm -hmm. and again, the level of concern that Americans have about where health care is going. Probably because they're starting to figure out what is happening with their health care. They've had a couple of years to get used to (laughs) some of the changes, and so now they're much more interested in their health care than they used to be. They're absolutely more interested in it, Tracy. And if you go back to when our parents were getting health care, 90% of the companies out there said, we're going to take care of your health care for you. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Your deductible is going to be 5 or $10, and you can get all, any health care that you'd like for that. And what we're seeing on the exchanges now, 26-year-olds are being asked to make a choice in their insurance product. I know when I was 26, I wasn't <laughs> thinking about what insurance product I wanted for anything, even my car insurance. The Affordable Care Act was supposed to reduce the cost of health care in addition to making sure that more Americans were insured. It hasn't happened. You're right. It hasn't happened. But ultimately, 
what's going to dec- decrease the cost of health care is keeping Americans healthier. Prevention, yep. right? So cancer prevention. There are vaccines out there now that can prevent certain forms of cancer. You know, cervical cancer can be prevented mm-hmm. in most cases by getting the, the HPV vaccine. Certainly. Yep, but only exactly. 40% of women have taken advantage of that vaccine, and less than 10% of men have taken advantage of that vaccine to prevent cancer. Yet, when we ask health consumers in the survey, would they be willing to take a vaccine that prevents cancer? 90% said they would be. So that's that education opportunity we have by questioning American health consumers, finding out what they know and where those gaps are. Yeah, I found that it was also interesting in your survey that people thought that we'd made the least progress in uh, the, with the problem of obesity, and they're exactly right, huh? They are exactly right, and obesity is tied to so many different things. Your energy levels, your sleep patterns, heart disease, diabetes. Cancer. Cancer. Yeah. So if we can start to move the dial on obesity it allows us to move the dial on so many other diseases and decrease the cost. If we decrease the number of times somebody's coming to the hospital for heart disease or cancer, there's an exponential savings in being able to do that. For whatever reason, obesity is a tough nut to crack, isn't it? It is. Our guest is Dr. John Wald. He's Medical Director for Public Affairs at Mayo Clinic. We're talking about the National Health Checkup. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll cover more results from the survey, news for baby boomers, and about my favorite topic, sleeping. (laughs) Plus, we'll find out how Mayo Clinic is using this data. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shire. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are back talking with Dr. John Wald, and he is the Medical Director of Public Affairs at Mayo Clinic, and we're talking about the results of the National Health Checkup, a survey that the Mayo Clinic has started in 2016. So, uh, Dr. Wald, so far, you've got one set of uh, data. You're going to get another one pretty soon. What are you going to do with it? And, well, this information allows us to partner with patients and health consumers to try to define the right educational pathways for those health consumers and ultimately the conversations that we need to have with health consumers to decrease these, their concerns. So if there's concerns about cancer, if there's de- concerns about the cost of medical care, we can have those conversations with our patients. You know, in the first survey, we found that 60% of Americans in the upper Midwest we're not ready to have a telemedicine visit with their physician. Now, we as an organization believe that's potentially the next big idea. So we can interact with somebody in a rural community to speak with them. They don't have to travel to Mayo Clinic, but they get Mayo Clinic-level care. But that bit of information tells us that we can't go boldly forward with that idea until we begin to educate patients one-on-one as we're sitting here together talking about that and the benefits of that because health consumers don't quite see it yet. Isn't that interesting? 60% of Americans say they're not ready to have a telemedicine consultation. Correct. And the numbers are actually higher in the upper Midwest. Well, you know, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd do it in a minute if it save me a trip to go in and see my doctor. <laughs> well, it's something I, I think that'll change over time, though, yeah. don't you? Well, I, I hope it changes over time. And it's not just young Americans are wearing the Apple Watch or the Google this, that, or the other thing. And we have opportunities in some of those devices to start to connect with our patients in a better way. If you look at a diabetic patient or an asthma patient, if we were able to define that diabetic patient, their sugars were rising by some connection with Mayo Clinic, we could intervene earlier and prevent their trip to the emergency room or eventually even to the ICU if it was a critical condition. 
So those are the messages that this actually enhances our ability as an organization, whatever that health care organization is, to reach out to health consumers and really improve their, their lifestyle. I want to I want to talk about baby boomers and sleep because <laughs> I've seen these little facts here and I want to know more about it. So first of all, let's talk about the baby boomers. Uh, two-thirds of baby boomers are concerned about their brain. <laughs> Explain that a little bit more. Well, I would say Alzheimer's disease has really risen to the top of the discussion about neurologic disease, especially in the lay press. We have seen a, a number of individuals who are suffering from Alzheimer's disease. I, Glenn Campbell comes quickly to mind, and his story has been well chronicled about his family's involvement in his disease process and how that has moved forward with him. And it's scary. Just like cancer is scary for a lot of Americans, the inability to define where you're going to be when you're 70 or 80 years old from a mental capacity is really scary for not only young people, but even 50% of the Generation Xers um, are concerned about what their brain health is going to be like moving Hmm. forward. So I think we have a huge opportunity to continue to invest in Alzheimer's research. We're starting to see a lot of good things come out of the medical um, research that we're doing about potentially Alzheimer's prevention or treatment. Tom mentioned obesity and exercise. We know that exercise is just one of those things that can help decrease the risk of Alzheimer's disease in the future. So we have to have those conversations. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because everybody out there has a, an aunt or an uncle or a grandma or a grandpa who's had Alzheimer's disease, and they see the def- devastating effect it can have not only on the individual, but the entire family. And you can see why everyone one fears that. And a lot of money being poured into Alzheimer's uh, research. Dr. Ron Peterson right here at, at Mayo, who took care of, of, of Glenn Campbell. But for whatever reason, that's almost as difficult as curing cancer of the pancreas, isn't it? It is absolutely uh, a challenge for us. And it's one of those things, again, like cancer, that's scary because it's the unknown. You know, we talked about heart disease. Well, we know that we can intervene in heart disease, put a stent in, and make grandma better or grandpa better. How do we intervene in Alzheimer's disease? Yeah. And the prevention, the early treatments are challenging because we're never going to get sick. Right, We're all young sitting around this table, (laughs) so we don't have to worry about those things. But some of the best ways of preventing it are the early interventions that you can make. So Tracy's not the only one who isn't sleeping well either, right? (laughs) I was going to say, can we move along? Because if I were to be elected president, the first thing I'd say is everybody go to bed because people aren't getting enough sleep. Because you're not going to want to see what happens. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. Go to sleep. Well, Tracy, it's another one of those areas where we found out that health consumers are spot on in what they know about sleep. They all know three-quarters of Americans said that you need between seven and nine hours sleep to, to be adequately refreshed and start that next day. Less than 50% of them, or 50% <laughs> of them said they get that amount of sleep right. less than 50% of the time. Wow. But it's in the first survey back in January, we talked about stress and work-life balance. And it was one of the significant things that American health consumers say affect their lives. Everyone wants to exercise and eat right, but finding the time to eat right in a busy workday, finding the time to exercise in a busy workday, cuts into your sleep and decreases your your time that you can sleep and decreases your time with family. So work-life balance is something that we as Americans have to figure out. So basically what this survey is telling you is is where are the areas where you need to concentrate your educational efforts on? Is that is that it? 
That's exactly it, Tom. And I think that we as an organization have always partnered with our patients. And this allows us, as we move out beyond the walls of our institution, and we have to do that to interact with Americans sooner in their health care, it tells us the areas that we have to have discussions with our patients. And in forums like this, where we can talk about what the opportunities are to decrease cancer rates through things like Cologuard and early screening, um, and education about sleep and how important that is, in decreasing stress levels, improving your chance to stay healthy, and decreasing obesity in your life, and exercising appropriately. So tell us what Mayo is doing on, an, on a national level to help make changes that you think are important in, in healthcare delivery. Well, we are very active across the U.S. and actually internationally in having these conversations. Dr. John knows where they are, CEO, is placed in the forums. And we don't just talk about the governance, if you will, of, of medicine, but we talk about the things that we need to do as healthcare providers to educate our patients and health consumers that make them more informed and healthier Americans. Insurance is one of those things. The Affordable Care Act is basically at this time an insurance product that has offered insurance to all Americans. But we have to remain involved in the conversations that say, okay, now what do we do with those insurance products that decrease the cost and allow patients to have access to the services that they need and and to services like institutions like ours or Johns Hopkins or Massachusetts General because as those insurance products start to try to save money, they do that by limiting access to American health consumers to the institutions that they want to go to. And we have to have those conversations. Yeah, and, and isn't it particularly difficult from the standpoint uh, that, that, you know, we've helped people live longer. Uh, because of that, there are more and more, what, 10,000 people every day who uh, turn 65 go on to Medicare. Difficult because of the Medicare reimbursement. Difficult to break even on those patients, yet there are more and more of them every day. Does that concern you? It absolutely concerns us because our goal is to make health care accessible and affordable for all Americans. The highest cost of health care are in ER visits, ICU stays, and in end of life. And we have to have those conversations. ER visits, ICU stays can be prevented in many cases by prevention and healthier Americans. That's where we can make a difference in the short term. We can talk about governance of it and insurance <laughs> products, but healthier Americans decrease the overall cost of health care. All right. Education is important. Good luck to you, and, and thanks for sharing the results of the uh, survey, and I hope you learn more and more as time goes on. Dr. John Wald, Medical Director of Public Affairs at Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you both. Have a great morning. We're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll talk about bedwetting and other common problems with a Mayo Clinic pediatric urologist. And we'll discuss the role of impulsivity in suicide. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. With your Mayo Clinic Radio Health Minute, I'm Vivian Williams. Your feet work hard every day. People with diabetes should be vigilant about proper foot care. Foot care is really important for people with diabetes because of the risk of a diabetic foot infection, which typically starts with a peripheral neuropathy. Mayo Clinic's Dr. Elizabeth Cozine says peripheral neuropathy is a common complication of diabetes. It means nerves in the foot are damaged and people can't feel pain. Some diabetics also have poor blood 
blood flow to the feet, which slows healing. So if they have a minor injury, there's a possibility of it turning into a major injury or infection. The following five tips can help people with diabetes keep their feet healthy. Inspect and wash your feet daily. Be careful when you trim nails. Wear properly fitting shoes, don't go barefoot, and take steps to manage your diabetes by eating right, exercising, monitoring blood sugar, and regularly taking your medications. And if you do notice any sores on your feet, act fast and see your health care provider. And in other news, how much exercise do I need to help control my cholesterol? Good question. Well, Mayo Clinic experts say regular physical activity can help lower LDL or bad cholesterol, which is the main source of cholesterol buildup in the arteries and a risk factor for heart disease. It can also raise HDL or good cholesterol, which helps prevent cholesterol buildup. The Surgeon General recommends at least 150 minutes of moderately intense physical activity a week, about 20 minutes a day, such as cycling, dancing, bowling, and gardening. More intense activities include jogging, swimming, playing basketball, racquetball, soccer, and tennis. Now, adding muscle-strengthening exercises such as squats, arm curls, and leg raises at least two days a week increases benefit. Check with your doctor before you start any exercise regimen. It's best to ease into your exercise routine slowly if you haven't been active lately. For instance, start by taking short walks around the block, then gradually work up to a faster pace and longer distances. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Prasish Tosh. And I'm Tracy McRae. Soggy sheets and pajamas and an embarrassed child are a familiar scene in many homes. But bedwetting isn't a sign of toilet training gone bad. It's often just normal part of a child's development. According to the American Academy of Pediatrics, only 5 million children in the United States wet the bed. So when should you be concerned? Can bedwetting be a sign of other urinary problems? Here to discuss bedwetting and other common pediatric urology problems is Mayo Clinic pediatric urologist Dr. Patricio Gagoyo. Welcome to the program, Dr. Gagoyo. Great. Thank you both for having me. Is it as common? It seems like every kid wets the bed when they're little at some point. You know, Tracy, this is an incredibly common problem. And what's interesting, and you have alluded to already, is that this is just not discussed. We don't talk about it very often in social circles, but it's something that definitely affects a very large group of our children. And, uh, you know, we want parents and children to know that there is help. There are things we can discuss and talk about and try to make this condition a lot better for them. And so there's when kids are potty trained and then people will say, well, they're potty trained, but not at night yet. So how long is that span? How long does that usually take? Well, I always tell parents that, you know, when you think about normal toilet training, it's a very complex process and a very sort of complex sequence that children need to learn. I tell parents, you know, children learn how to talk. They learn how to walk. They learn how to jump. They learn how to say multiple complex things. And the last thing they learn how to do is how to toilet train. So it's really a very complex uh, sequence of events that have to happen both in the brain and in the bladder and in the sort of the connections that, that there are between the two organs. Um, it is very common to have children be dry during the day and yet have persistent nighttime wetting. And you can see that up to, you know, age six, seven, eight, nine, the child can be completely wet during the 
during the nighttime and yet completely dry during the day. And, and that causes some concern, rightfully so, for parents of an otherwise healthy child. I always thought it was kids were too tired and they couldn't wake up to go to the bathroom. Right. Is that is that just something that the old wives tell? You know, that's such a common misconception. And I tell parents that, you know, this condition is not the child's fault. I mean, of course, there's nothing that the child would rather do than to stay dry at nighttime. And, um, you know, they're not lazy. It's not that they're not getting up. And again, that's that's something that we, we get a lot. And in you know, it's it's an interesting problem because for as common as it is, we don't have a lot of answers of why it happens. But what we do tend to see in these children is that it's primarily happens in boys more than more so than in girls, but happens in both genders. And what is very common in these children is they are very, very heavy sleepers. So if you tell the parents, you know, can you, uh, you know, make noise? Are they, you know, is little Johnny or little Sally a light sleeper? Oh, no, doctor. They, you could drive a truck in there. They wouldn't know. And part of the reason we think this happens is this, these children are so asleep. Their brain and sort of their brain function is so asleep that the signals from their bladder that their bladder is full doesn't seem to get to the right place. And so they have accidents. And once they mature and they get older and those networks develop and get better and those connections kind of mature a little bit better, the problem just tends to go away on its own. Wow. You know, I'm, I have a, a young child. So he's going to be 11 months old very soon. And so it's, I've got a little ways to think about this, but I'm listening very intently to what you have to say. Uh, and as we eventually t- toilet train him and what have you, when should me or other parents start to get concerned? that uh, this bedwetting is is maybe more than uh, what would be normally expected. Right. No, that's a great question. And again, we get that quite a bit. I mean, I tell parents and and patients that if this is isolated wetting at night in an otherwise healthy child with no other urologic problems, no history of urinary tract infections, no other medical conditions that require medications, no other major surgery, a completely normal, healthy child, um, it, there's really no reason to become alarmed as long as it's an isolated nighttime problem. Now, if you get into issues where the child has a urologic history, has had a lot of urinary tract infections, or if there's daytime and nighttime wetting, that is a big, big alarm for us. If you have daytime and nighttime wetting, uh, and otherwise a child that you wouldn't expect to have that, meaning after toilet training three, four, or five years old, that is when you really need to have a specialist come and take a look at this child, have a pediatric urologist evaluate them, because you can't have certain conditions where you have daytime and nighttime wetting that really need to be checked up on. Now, you were saying if the child is a really heavy sleeper, or you just said urinary tract infections, are there other conditions that cause bedwetting? Well, isolated bedwetting, uh, and again, in, in an otherwise healthy child, is is not necessarily associated with other problems. Okay. You will usually see something else. Something else is going on. Again, daytime accidents. You can have stool accidents that are not just urinary accidents, but stool accidents during the day. Then you really need to evaluate, well, is this a problem with the nerves that go to the bladder? Is this a problem, you know, in the brain and the brain processing? Is this the possibility that there's some anatomical or structural problem with the way the urinary tract has developed that is going to predispose this child to wet? But again, isolated nighttime issues, really, we only become concerned if they're only at night, nothing during the day, no urinary tract infections, we become concerned when the parents become concerned, when the child becomes concerned, because it really becomes more of a social stigma. Absolutely. So what should parents tell kids? What do you want them to know? Because that's when the emotions can get all wrapped in, up into it. It gets to be a big problem. So right. what should parents be telling children? Right. Well, I think the most important thing for children to know is that they're not alone. You know, up to 10% of children between ages 6 and 8 will have this problem. So you can have 
a class full of children where three or four or even five are going to be affected. But again, no one talks about it. So that's the first thing I tell parents is tell your child that they're not alone. This is not a problem. They're not, you know, broken or there's not something wrong with them. This is very common. And number two is when this starts to become a social problem, when they say, you know, doctor, we really want Johnny to go to sleepaway camp. He's getting invited to these sleepovers. Sally wants to go, you know, spend the night at our grandmother's house, but they're embarrassed. When it becomes a social issue, it's an acceptance issue. They're really becoming a little bit ostracized uh, with activities. That's when we say, look, come see us. Let's evaluate your child. Let's talk about the options that are available to try to deal with the situation. If only they had the support groups for for children, like at the playground, or Bedwetters Anonymous. Or something oh yeah, like we could uh, start that. That could be a thing. I, right. I don't know. Uh, you would mention a little bit about uh, urinary tract infections. Of course, as an uh, infectious diseases doc, asking you about uh, you're just how common are urinary tract infections, either related to bedwetting or or on its own. Yeah, you know, this is, again, a very common problem. I mean, this uh, constitutes a good percentage of our practice, about 8 to 10% of girls and about 1 to 2% of boys before age 5 will have a urinary tract infection. So more common in girls just because of the way they're built, a little less common in boys, but we see it very, very commonly. And, again, the main question with urinary tract infections is how old is the child? How bad was the infection? Is this an isolated infection that just happened once? Is this something that's been happening a lot of times? Is it um, related to any other issues that we've seen in the past, either a prenatal history of urinary tract abnormalities or other things to consider? And is there an age when typical age when kids kind of grow out of this behavior or out of out of bedwetting? Yeah, so... Back to bedwetting, you don't tend to see it very commonly in children after eight or nine, but you can certainly see it in children up to adolescence. And what does seem to happen is when children start to hit puberty, you know, a little bit earlier in girls, a little bit later in boys, but around the early teen and preteen years, it's very, very rare to see it. Now, as far as urinary tract infections, we see them fairly commonly in newborns and babies, so sort of infants, and that is a little bit more of a... Uh, you know, a situation that requires some follow-up a little bit more carefully. We also tend to see it around the age of potty training. So in age mm-hmm. three or four with girls, because again, they, they're learning kind of to hold everything in. And if you have sort of stagnant urine sitting in a bladder with a couple little bacteria, you can get in trouble. At what point, you say it's fairly common, right? Right. Uh, at what point should parents be concerned? So again, in the babies, we have a fairly stringent way of evaluating them when they have a urinary tract infection with a fever because there's sort of there's two flavors of urinary tract infections. There's urinary tract infections with fevers, what are called febrile urinary tract infections, and ones without fevers. They're kind of a different animal because if there's fever involved, that usually means that the kidneys have been affected, that there's some element of kidney infection that that comprises this infection, and that requires a little bit more demanding follow-up with some radiographic studies and, and such that, again, uh, either a pediatrician or in cases of, of uh, you know, more acute infections, a pediatric urologist can be involved in. We've been talking about pediatric urology with Dr. Patricio Gargoyo. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Gargoyo. Oh, thanks. Pleasure to be here. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, startling statistics about the number of American adults who have suicidal thoughts. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Pratish Tosh. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, more than 42,000 people in the United States die from suicide annually, making suicide the 10th leading cause of death overall. 
The facts and figures about suicide are one thing, but the role that impulsivity plays in a completed suicide is often not appreciated. Here to discuss these statistics is Mayo Clinic psychiatrist Dr. Michael Bostwick. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Bostwick. It's good to have you here. Thanks. So impulsivity, I think, is probably not the first thing that comes to people's mind when they hear a fact like the number of people who die every year. So first of all, do you think that, is that figure sound about right? 42,000 people die every year? Oh, absolutely. And and in fact, um, the rate, uh, which is 12 to 14 per 100,000 per year, has really not varied a lot outside of a range of uh, uh, 10 or 20 percentage points for decades, if not a century. So the idea that people have that suicide is an increasing problem in the United States, is that just that we're seeing more coverage of it or people are talking about it more or why is that? Probably both. I mean, there are statistics saying that since 2000, the rate is up 27%, but we're talking about a rare phenomenon that's a little less rare. That does not mean that when it occurs, it isn't absolutely devastating. And unlike most medical conditions, uh, people are at risk for suicide over the course of their entire lifetime. That makes it different from certain cancers, for example, where you have to, you're not at risk till you're 55 or 60. Suicide becomes the 10th uh, leading cause of death in the U.S. by attrition. You just add up all those years and years and years that people are at risk. Dr. Bostwick, you uh, have done a lot of research, including mm-hmm. research in uh, suicide. And uh, what are some of the things that you have uncovered that maybe uh, was not previously known or things that you've figured out uh, through your own research that mm-hmm. uh, may not be common, common knowledge? Well, uh Now, almost 20 years ago, um, we did a paper that showed um, sort of a hierarchy of risk that won't be surprising, but had never been shown in a meta-analysis. People who have been hospitalized with suicidality have about a 1 in 11 risk of dying uh, uh, over their lifetime of suicide. Uh, People who have been hospitalized for mental health reasons have about a 4% risk, so 1 in 25 uh, people who've seen psychiatrists as outpatients also have a somewhat elevated risk. But the most recent research that we were interested in was um, looking to see if uh, a statistic, suicide is much elevated after a suicide attempt, completed suicide is much more likely after a suicide attempt, whether we were studying the right people. So we looked at uh, almost 25 years of, of medical records from Olmsted County here in Rochester for people who made their first medically known attempt during that 25-year period. We followed these patients, 1,500 of them, uh, for anywhere from 3 to uh, 27 years. And what we found was that um, about 60%, almost two-thirds of the people who made a suicide attempt died on the first attempt. Mm. What that means is our first stop was not the emergency room or the hospital. Their first stop was the coroner's slab. Uh, and why that's relevant is that everything we know about suicide after suicide attempt is based on populations of people who've already made an attempt and uh, who are in the hospital, who are have come to the emergency room, uh, so-called convenient samples because they're not complete samples. So what this really suggests is that we have to do what we can to have people not make the attempt at all. 
you had mentioned that you'd studied impulsivity mm-hmm. and the role that that plays in this. And can you elaborate a little bit about what that means? Well, let's link um, what we learned from uh, another aspect of the study to the question about impulsivity. The odds ratio for dying by gunshot uh, was 140 times more than any other method, meaning that if a person used a gun, they were exceedingly likely to actually succeed. Uh, a very high proportion of the patients, uh, the, uh, the individuals in our study, um, got it right, as it were, by using a gun on that first attempt. And what we know from people who have survived bridge jumping, hanging, uh, gunshot even, is that they very often regret what they did, that, that it was an impulsive action. They can't believe what happened, um, and they're very grateful to be alive. So it makes me wonder, um, with those many people who are dead of gunshot, whether they might have uh, gotten better. Again, um, a good way to think of suicide is that, it's a, that it occurs at a crisis in a person's life, driven by, uh, among other things, things that have happened to them, depression, things that we can manage. But if they get to the point of actually wanting to self-harm, and there are a very high proportion of Americans who have those thoughts, then impulsive means or means that will work, that are available to be used, um, can't be regretted if they succeed. Wow. And uh, is there things that can be done, you know, either uh, by medical uh, professionals or you know, family members? What are the things that, uh, I mean, can we intervene on this? Well, I, I mean, based on the study, um, the obvious thing is gun control. Um, and um, so that we don't um, uh, cause everybody who loves guns to descend upon us and yell at us, the issue is keeping them locked up, keeping them away from people who might use them impulsively. So it doesn't mean take, you know, turn your gun in never to see it again. But if there, I remember another time during Suicide Prevention Day, mm-hmm. uh, you had said it can be a temporary, if there is a temporary situation where the person is in crisis, then by all means, temporarily remove the gun from the home. And suicide is described by some as a, as a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Um, remove it from the home, lock it up, and be aware that you have things people can use impulsively around your house. Uh, guns are the most obvious one and the most lethal one. That's what our study, our study shows. Um, and there are lots of uh, ways to find out uh, what people look like who are at higher risk. They look depressed. They're talking about being dead. They're giving things away. They're acting as if there is no future. So these are all things where we know we should be seeking help for these people uh, to be, treat what is often a depression. And one of the things I think is really interesting, I don't personally believe, uh, so I make all the suicide researchers mad at me, that you can actually prevent suicide for a person who really, really intends to do it. But many of the things that drive suicidal states are highly treatable. Depression, substance abuse, uh and if we deal with those things, I would think and believe that over time suicide rates would drop. And dealing with mental health, as uh, you said, depression is one of the key pieces um, to that situation. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Uh, Michael Bostwick, Mayo Clinic psychiatrist, thank you for joining us and uh, speaking with us about the role that impulsivity plays in this ongoing problem in this country. Thank you. 
You're welcome. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.